Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Lindsay. And this is the Hideaway Podcast, episode 34. 34. That's a terrible Dutch. <laughs> Happy Wednesday morning. Happy hump day. <laughs> That's a little weird. Uh, we got a big week. That's weekend. what everyone calls it. Get over the hump of a Wednesday. Yeah. Today, well, not feeling too humpy today. We have a uh, pretty humptastic weekend coming up. We do. We're working on a workshop. Working, working on a workshop. Of a new show that we've been working on with Spencer Novick that we teased a little bit on the podcast last week with Adam Kukler called... Party starters. They get the party started. Yeah. And it's a three-person comedy, clown, silly, fun, family-friendly show about these three idiots whose only mission in life is to get parties started and teach other people how to start parties. <laughs> and the premise, the premise of the show is that you're coming in to take their class, basically, and they're going to teach you 20 of the most essential party-starting techniques that you can use in any party-starting situation. So anyone who is confused or interested in learning how to start a party, this show's for you. Yes, it is. And we'll be posting uh, regular sort of behind-the-scenes uh, stuff to our Instagram feed. What is it called? The... The thing that you post. Live? Oh, Instagram story? Our Instagram story. I'm obsessed with Instagram storying, so I'll be posting Instagram stories on our Instagram story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So check out our Instagram. We'll be posting some fun stuff on there. On our Instagram story. On the Instagram story. <laughs> we saw the band's visit last week, like we mentioned we were going to see in the last podcast. The musical at Atlantic Theater. At Atlantic Theater. And let me just set up the audience that was there. <laughs> It was like the last week of shows that they they extended it twice. So I think everyone was like, oh, I have to go see what this show is like. It's doing really well. So we walk in and there's every Broadway producer that has ever been a Broadway producer there in the lobby. And there's this one producer who I interned for for like a day and a half before I quit because I thought he was rude to me and I was like standing up for myself and I felt really empowered that I was like, you know what, I'm not gonna let someone treat me like this. Peace out, dude. I did it, of course, in a very professional, polite manner, but I left. But now I feel like he and I have, like, beef. Like, we're, like, the mean girl. Like, we just have, like, a thing. And you saw him in the and lobby. And I saw him in the lobby. And every time I see him, I literally wanted, like, faint. I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was there. Jeffrey Seller, who was the producer of Hamilton, was there. Um, Like, other people who aren't that interesting. A lot of producers were there. And, um... But the uh, Stephen Schwartz who wrote Wicked was there. It's funny. It's funny how where you go to the people who caught your eye were the musical people. I walked in and saw Michael Moore there, and I was like, "Oh crap, it's Michael Moore!" Oh yeah, Michael the Moore. And then his documentary his, filmmaker his guest was Mark Ruffalo. So Michael Moore <laughs> and Mark Ruffalo were seeing the bands visit together, and so like I was like, "Wow, everyone is here," and we bought our tickets early so we had like really great seats and i think everyone else kind of booked them last minute so we were sitting like in really nice seats and, and they were all like behind us but i was like wow everyone's here and then i went to the bathroom at the end of the show who walks out of the bathroom danny devito <laughs> so it was like just to top it all off danny devito was there yeah and of course you know we were there we were there it was a good show it's good it, uh it's about this like takes place in this small desert town in Israel uh, and this band is playing in this Israel town called they're supposed to be playing in a called a, a town, town called, called Betach Tikva but they get confused and they go to a town called Petach Tikva or the opposite yeah and there's a song about about <laughs> how one town is with a B and is you know fancy and wonderful and full of arts and creativity and the other one is starts with a P and is uh like, there's nothing in the town that's really boring. Right. And that's where they end up. So it was it funny. Was the music was really yeah. nice. And the girl who played the, the lead was just so she was awesome. amazing. Um, but I think it's closed. But I have a, an inkling it'll reopen somewhere else since all those people were there. And if it does, everyone should definitely go see it. I think it's going to end up on Broadway. Yeah, I think so, too. I think it needs, like, a little bit more juice in it as far as, like, conflict and... Edge. You know, yeah, edge. But as far as the first time ever doing it off, probably it was really good. Yeah, I agree. You know what I joined for Christmas or my mom got me? What? Book of the Month Club. Oh, aren't you an old lady? 
<laughs> I know, but it's so fun. You get to like choose a book that's curated by your peers, basically. And uh, you pick out of the five books every month that they recommend, you pick one and they send it to you. And it's a hardcover book. And I'm reading The Woman in Cabin 12 right now. How's that? So good. Recommend it as a read. What's it about? Uh, it's about this. It takes place in England. And it's this woman who is a travel journalist. Mm-hmm. And her boss is pregnant. So she goes on this trip instead um, of her boss because it's on this luxury uh, yacht that's only 10 cabins for the rich you know the richest of the rich but they're opening up to the travel journals to write pieces about it and uh a murder ensues but it's really well written it's really good and i've been seeing it on my instagram like people reading it so i'm reading it it's very good i've actually also recently read a book that we didn't talk about didn't talk about yet but spencer novick uh suggested i read it a while ago and i figured in preparation for party starters that i would take a take a gander your vocabulary of words starting with a p has been growing what did you write on the party start prepare to party start and the prepare (laughs) yeah i wrote some silly emails to the cast with a lot of p's in there what's the book though the book is how to steal like an artist Mm. and it's about 100 pages it's really short a lot of it is illustrated but it's uh, a bunch of different ideas on how to generate material and art and ideas and what is the right kind of way to to be inspired by other people's work and what is stealing in a not good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just had a lot of fun reading it. Like, it got my brain flowing in preparation for this workshop. If you're sort of at a point where you're like, ah, oh, I could use some use some navigation, some inspiration, this is a really great, easy, quick read, How to Steal Like an Artist. I don't know what the segue is to Seb, but because he doesn't steal, but he is an artist. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, segue. Segue to Seb. On this week's podcast, we have your oldest friend. Yeah, I think he is my oldest friend. Well, he's my oldest friend that I've known him the longest, not that he is <laughs> particularly old. Your oldest friend is your grandfather, who's 92. Yes, that's true. Oh, little Arnon. Oh, my grandfather. So, Sebastian, I met him when we were eight or nine. And uh, I met him in a gymnastics class that we were taking in Stamford, Connecticut. And Sebastian introduced me to seeing Cirque du Soleil uh, after we had met, and that really sparked my my interest in this this world. But Seb, but Seb. started in Circus Mercus with you. If you have time and you want a laugh, Google or Facebook search Seb and Josh's Smirkus audition. I, I watched it. It is... A, very impressive for how old you are at the Korean Plank Act. Very, very good. But B, the artistic idea behind it. Don't is, reveal it because we talk about it in the is episode. It's amazing. But so definitely take the time to watch it. But so Seb started in Circus Mercus, then went on to ENC, graduated, worked as a circus artist until he got injured, and then went back to school in Europe to to get his master's in circus dramaturgy circus dramaturgy which he's we talk about a lot yeah what is circus dramaturgy you want to know take a listen <laughs> but i actually really enjoyed talking to seb i have a lot of these kinds of conversations with him where he and i will sit up late into the night talking about debating the, debating different ideas in circus and the merits of things and sort of trying to get down to some some core principle truths which we sometimes manage to and sometimes don't. And we talk a little bit in this episode about his uh, his first thesis that he wrote and some of the ideas behind that, what studying circus in an academic environment is like, and sort of what a circus dramaturg has to, to offer the creative process. I think it's a very interesting episode because we talk about stuff that we haven't yet. And if you have a really strong opinion one way or the other, I think Seb even wants you to email him because I think it's fun for him to talk to people with different ideas. Yeah, I think this episode's going to challenge a lot of your preconceived notions of what circus is in a good way. So yeah. I challenged mine. I debate with Seth the whole time. I'm like, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so, Seth. But it's fun. Yeah, so have a have a nice listen, and thanks for following our podcast. But before you listen, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, tweet us, Facebook. Write us an email at hello at hideawaycircus.com. And uh, rate us on iTunes. If you like the podcast, if you like what we're doing every week, uh, let us know what you think of it. Leave a comment. We really appreciate it. Here's Seb. Um, I'm leading the beginning of this interview because you and Josh have known each other since you were... Like 
11 or maybe even earlier yeah like maybe digits. maybe nine yeah. you guys be in middle school we met at gymnastics oh gymnastics yeah. i convinced sebastian <laughs> to yeah. come to my middle school it's true oh, it's wow. true i didn't yeah. know that yeah because he was like my only friend who wasn't at my school and i was hating my school and i was like maybe i should go to josh's school and then you transferred to josh's i transferred to josh's school and yeah. i told seb at the time that there were like all these cute girls that i was hanging out with <laughs> and that my school was just full of cute girls and then you know my cover was blown once sebastian actually came to the school that there saw were cute him. girls no but how cool i was around cute girls oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so you go to his school you're yeah. doing gymnastics together and at what point do the two of you decide, I'm going to audition for Circus Mercus? Well, I think the, the relevant backstory there is that, like, I decided to do gymnastics in order to become a circus artist. Oh, you, so like, you had the circus. I had the whole plan okay, out. so let yeah. Okay, so let's back up then. Yeah. How did you get in, interested in circus? Like so many other young circus artists, Cirque du Soleil was my inspiration when I was young. <laughs> so you saw Cirque du Soleil way before Josh I saw Cirque du Soleil in Hong Kong in 1995, I think. <laughs> Casual. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I saw Alegria. And, and basically I thought it was awesome. I was like so terrified. And then I like couldn't forget it. It was like this <laughs> traumatic... It was the like initial traumatic wound that has like created the symptom that is this <laughs> this life, um, and basically I had this friend who was just a total like, you know, you have those friends when you're young and the whole friendship is based on conflict. Maybe that's a boy thing, but no, I've seen my sisters have that also. No, I think you yeah. do. You have that girl that you hate, but you're friends with. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And basically, I saw the show, and I don't know if he even saw the show, but he just saw images. And he he basically pointed to an image of a contortionist, and he was like, you will never be able to do that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I was Rude. like, that's what I'm doing. That's my life goal now. <laughs> Watch me. <laughs> Watch me. So did you tell your parents you wanted to do gymnastics? Yeah. And they knew that you wanted to do gymnastics because you wanted to do circus? You know, I can't remember what the order was exactly, because I know that when I was young, I was also in kind of like kids' gymnastics classes. Mm. But But I know that... The seriousness of it came after watching the Cirque du Soleil show and being like, this is what I want to do. And then when I got to the States, the decision to, uh, like, look for gymnastics, that was really, like, I want to be a circus artist and how do I do this, you know? And how old were you? Uh, it was 98 when we moved to the, when we moved back, so I guess I was seven years old. I think we met in fourth grade. I think that that and that that's no sure. i think it was earlier i think it was like third third yeah. grade because yeah. my because when i came back my first year was second grade yeah and i i went to gymnastics almost immediately yeah but so back to you at seven doing gymnastics with I josh want to, i want you to recount how you discovered circus mercus online that story <laughs> <laughs> so i was searching for circus summer camps because my mom was like they do this thing here that's called summer camp you should do one <laughs> And I was like, okay, I'm going to Google Circus. And I found Circus Mercus online, and I was like, this looks freaking amazing. Like, this looks awesome. And I it was sort of late at night, and I, like, ran into my parents' bedroom, and my mom was in the bathtub. And I, like, ran into her bathroom, and I was like, Mom, I found this awesome thing. And I, like, sh I think I had printed out the homepage. Because it, like, it was, like, the early 2000s. I, like, printed out the homepage of the website. And, um, and I handed it to her in the bath and she was, she said something like, she said like, oh, I'm not sure. And I was like, come on, mom, please, please. And she was like, mm, what if they sell you into slavery? <laughs> You're like, at least Josh and I will go together. Yeah. No, but at that point I was on my own and I went the first summer by myself. And then the oh, next summer I was like, camp. Josh, you have to come with me to this thing. It's awesome. Okay. So you first went to the camp. Yeah. And how was, was that like life changing? Yeah, totally. It was also like a totally different social crowd than I was experiencing in my elementary school, you know? Right. Where like, um, I found my people. Yeah. And that was cool. Uh, yeah. And not even, not even, oh, I found my people, but just to see that there was an alternative and that the idea of like what a, you know, you have one social life when you're a kid and you feel like that's the world. Mm -hmm. And then getting outside of that, you see something else and it's quite, right. yeah, it was really like refreshing and eye-opening. Totally. What did you study when you were at camp? Or do you study everything? Yeah. You kind of do everything. 
I was, I mean, mostly into Ariel, but also other stuff. Like, I mean, it was like this new discovery thing. So I was trying everything. Mm-hmm. I was into everything. And even through Smirkus, I kind of did a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just imagining you guys in your Smirkus costumes. Like... <laughs> In those, like, doctor jackets and, like, or what? Yeah, me and Josh had this legendary, for all you audience members out there, or listeners, for all the listeners out there. All the listeners. Josh and I had this legendarily embarrassing audition. <laughs> oh, that's what I'm imagining, fantastic. too. The audition tape is really <laughs> like, incredible. Yeah, it's still on YouTube somewhere. Those of you should go dig that up. Type in, type in Sebastian and Josh Smirkus audition into YouTube. We should just put the link of it into the... Oh, I'm not going to make it that easy. It's so funny. Oh it's really just magical. So you come back and you're like, Josh, we need like, to do this. Like, we need to do this. Also, because we were at the, we, we were um, going to this gymnastics summer camp also, and it was a totally different vibe. It was really kind of, like, competitive and kind of, like, macho, but in this, like, sort of boarding schooly kind of way mm-hmm. yes it was a little bit like yeah it was like a little bit not cool um and smirkus was a totally different vibe like way more family loving mm-hmm. like um yeah so i was like you've got to come do this and uh and we did <laughs> but i i would like you to describe your audition tape and how you came up with it <laughs> <laughs> um not dissimilar from the way we do the podcast i think seven i like set up the camera and then, like, riffed, like, yeah, a well, whole we bunch were, of times. Yeah, we were, like, training kind of, like, hand-to-hand. Yeah. I know. Oh, yeah. yeah this is <laughs> so amazing. I think what we cut out, there's a video Seven I also made, uh, like, a trampoline tricks video that oh we did God, in his yeah. backyard that I don't think made... Because we did duo trampoline in the Smirkish show <laughs> yeah. for, like, two years in a row or something. Yeah. We did things that... <laughs> That fit my body type well and not Sebastian's not body type. But I was like, whatever, I'm along for the ride, you know? Yeah, this like long, gangly, flexible yeah. body. I didn't get it at all that I couldn't, that that was not my thing. I was like, I could do anything. Did you guys, what did you, uh, what did you hang in your, in your garage? Well, prior to hanging stuff in my garage, Seb took the initiative to like build a trapeze bar, a more legit trapeze bar on his on his swing set, and yes. he built a wire in his backyard with cinder blocks. That's true. Yeah, the 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 tr- the more advanced trapeze, let's be clear, <laughs> only entailed like we had a swing set that had already on it a trapeze, but it was like oh, like one of those with the little. It's like a trapeze triangles. for kids with the yeah. triangle plastic triangle handles, and like the bar was like metal and slippery, and it, was, it had chains, you know, okay. and um. And making it more professional only involved wrapping the bar and tape. (laughs) (laughs) But I was, I was training like legit trapeze on chains for a while because I was like, whatever pain, you don't bother me. (laughs) (laughs) Who needs that pain? It was like really intense. Like there's photos of me doing like, I don't know if you can picture what a gazelle roll up is, but that shit is painful even on ropes. And I was doing that on chains, just like whatever. I love circus. So you guys go to camp for the first time together. Yes. Yeah, we do camp. Seb does it for four years. I do it for three years, right? Do I have that right? Maybe even more, but who's counting? So you did three or four years of camp before you guys auditioned for the tour. Yeah. And what did you audition for the tour? Uh, with hand to hand. With the two of you? Yeah. <laughs> but, but was, I did not know that. Yeah. I thought you auditioned Trappies and no, you no, did no, no, like no, no, something. No, no, no. We auditioned, we auditioned, I mean, it was not exactly hand to hand. It was kind of like dynamic partner acrobatics. <laughs> what they call eccentric acrobatics. I believe, I believe though, it was, we wore zoot suit costumes, but yellow. What, we had, we had, which we ordered online from a Halloween costume store. We did, but we had made the act, the act was directed originally by Jesse Dryden. As as me and Sebastian as um, janitors, janitors yes. and we had a which a, we didn't we didn't think about how problematic that was to be just kind of like whatever we're kind of like manual laborers right. you know it's kind of weird when you it's think about it you know? but also we're janitors, but, also the janitor, yeah, we're janitors, janitors, but we we're really plunger. happy about our job because capitalism whatever you know but we had plungers that we used in the janitor act where like we would do stuff for like seven I would like use the bar of the of the the the, the what is it the plunger the plunger in order to like pull some over my back or you know like we would use it as yeah. a device to get into trick but then when we zoot suit caper 1920s themed it the i don't remember how we it fixed. became an umbrella no <laughs> oh, just, oh, i think that, it was an umbrella oh, okay. that's pretty clever yeah 
That's a good memory. I was going to say we used a broom or something, oh but I can I think it was an umbrella. In the second year, we auditioned with um, what is actually, I think, our most legendary Korean plank number. Korean plank. <laughs> with this, like, surreal Korean plank thing where I was blue and you were red. Yes. Or I was, like, the blue guy and you were the red guy and we were wearing these, like, these, like, outfits, these, like, tight kind of no. sort of, like... The 70s looking kind of like uh, outfits with silver shorts and like swim caps and we had painted like the top halves of our faces the color of our outfits. And we were wearing tights. And we were wearing tights. No. And have you never seen this? And no, I've never. There's still a video somewhere. I'm crying. And this the music so was Whip It by Devo. Yeah. And and I like legendarily <laughs> fucked up the last trick but like super, remember I like oh, yeah. the last trick was like a front tuck off the board. And I just, like, was, like, nervous and excited that it had been going so well. It was like, oh, my God, Smirkus auditions. And, like, I just let my legs, like, collapse, like, my like my knees into my butt. <laughs> but then we got up and did it right, no? Yes. Yeah. Here we did the trick. I remember that being a big, a big hit that year. And then our final year, Seb did. We only, we auditioned three to three years together on tour. And it's the third year is when we auditioned separately and yeah. I was like oh fuck Seb already <laughs> is good at something and I gotta learn something what did you do, so I can do a solo audition. I did a hoop a hoop I did a hoop and and that's when the oh setting up the legit aerial rig in his garage <laughs> happened okay and by yeah. legit all we mean is that like it was hung from a regular height we still used I believe a literal mattress as the <laughs> yeah as the crash pad yeah. <laughs> what did you audition with for straps like, straps yeah. okay um, oh my gosh so the first year you guys did tour together what was the theme? Zoot suit caper. <laughs> so you guys were perfect. Yeah, I mean, well, oh, we yeah. themed, of oh, course, you get, you get the theme before the uh, audition. Oh. Yeah, and then you make the number to suit Clever. the theme. Clever. Except the last year I was like, whatever. But the last year I was like, I'm exploring myself this year. <laughs> <laughs> on, on hoop. On hoop. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about um, the, a little bit of like the internal struggle you had during sort of junior, senior year as you go into like an incredibly academic private high school where I mean I wouldn't call that an internal struggle that was full on a struggle with <laughs> external forces but you know you had to choose between but you're accepted at Columbia and going to circus school is not an easy an easy choice to make yeah I mean um my parents were the most chill about it I think uh I think a lot of my friends at school were confused because the the atmosphere at school was really ambitious and um I think no one understood what that, what circus school was going to be. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I never got outright, like, you're wasting your life comments, but, like, people would, people, people didn't understand. Um, but I never really felt so, you know, like, when I got into circus school, I didn't think twice about going. I, I did, uh, I did think twice about doing more than one year. I was like, mm, I'm definitely going to do one year of this. And then we're going to see where it goes. But within three months, I mean, the atmosphere at ENC is so um, compellingly uh, internal in a way. Yeah, insular. Yeah, you just get, I just got so involved with that scene Mm -hmm. that I was like, there's no way I'm giving this up. Like, I wanted to do my presentes and like, that was going to be the highlight of my life, you Mm -hmm. know? (laughs) That's your final presentation. Yeah, the final presentation. You auditioned for ENC doing hoop? Yeah, doing the same number as I auditioned for Smirkus with that year. Oh, yeah. Must have been a good number. I think it was okay, yeah. <laughs> I think it was, I mean, it's, like, obviously super embarrassing, but, like... Also, I, you had a few good tricks in there that you didn't, you didn't keep. I, I brought some of those back. Yeah. Like, the... The, the toast and knees. The toast and knees thing that we trained together, yeah. I ended up bringing that back later like, on. toast like, and knees. Like, toes on the top bar, okay. and then fall to knees oh, on the bottom Oh, Leah, Leah Hintz Does just that was... Trick, yeah. yeah, I like that trick. Yeah, That's a, nice a good song. trick. So you graduate, you graduate ENC, you move to Europe. You talk about sort of what that experience was like being, being sort of raised in an American and then Canadian system, and then all of a sudden seeing what the European version of, of the circus world was like? Yeah. Well, the first, my first step was, was going to London and I was working in London. Um, like, uh, Brett Fister, uh, basically offered to introduce me to the scene, which was like super awesome of him. Cause otherwise I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today. Totally. Um, 
because I was kind of just sitting in Montreal like when is somebody gonna hire me you know <laughs> like waiting for it to drop from the sky <laughs> and um that's why Seth Bradfister also interests you because you guys have very similar acts yeah I mean he totally style. inspired me to do yeah. hoop for sure for sure yeah um but so I so I went to London and I found I found the scene there really difficult um in that I, f- I found that I had to do three times as much networking, schmoozing, and partying mm-hmm. as as working. And also that um, what I was surprised about was the things that I thought were exciting innovations in terms of uh, number composition. I think uh, the people programming the shows there saw as sort of just weird, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which I totally understand now. And I, like, it's exactly when I, when I was working at the box and I was like, Josh, what do you think about this number? And you were like, you need to change that music. And I was like, no, but it's new and different. And I didn't understand that actually often in, in the cabaret world, in the commercial world, like you need something that works Mm -hmm. and sells. And I was not always, I was right after school and during, during school, I think somewhere in a strange middle ground between, um, wanting to make something exciting and compelling, but also feeling like I wanted to push the boundaries sometimes in ways that made things uh, alienating or mm-hmm. something, you know? Yeah. So so I moved to London and found that sort of hard um, and started meeting contemporary circus artists. Um, and at a certain point, what happened? At a certain point, I started feeling more like I wanted to uh, train dance. So I was looking for places to do dance workshops and also my rent was too expensive in London. So, (laughs) so I, um, I decided to go for a month to Brussels and I started meeting people in that scene and I felt immediately more at home there. And at some point after you've been in Europe for like a year, you, you injured yourself, right? Yeah. Can you talk about what that was like? So having to deal with going, Oh damn it. Now I'm out for X amount of time and what that does to your psyche. Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, as a circus artist, when I was really focusing on performing, I was always paranoid that I was going to be injured and not be able to continue, even for a small amount of time. Because when you're in the middle of a contract, if you get injured, it really sucks to have to be like, sorry, I'm out of here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... And what were you doing when you were injured? GOP. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is like a sort of a variety cabaret circuit. In yeah, Germany. it's kind of like a chain of... It's a chain of cabarets, and it's a good gig because if you get hired by them, they sort of shuttle you between their different mm-hmm. venues, and it's you can do it for years, kind of. Um, so it was sort of like that was really my first year where things were rolling, you know, and I had done a bunch of contracts in a row, kind of, and I wasn't necessarily being super, super good about like training because I was doing a lot of shows, and I was like, this is kind of enough. Although, honestly, I was still training a lot. You know, I do like an hour and a half warm up, which I never do anymore, you know? <laughs> I do like an hour and a half warm up, and like part of that was always like physio and stuff, so whatever. I don't think I was totally to blame. I think I was partially just unlucky. Unlucky. Um, but I, I did a trick where I like dislocated my shoulder. Um, during a show? During a show, yeah. Oh. What did you do? Did you... I I sort of thought... Because sometimes things just kind of pop around. Like, sometimes you just do a thing that hurts, and you're like, whatever, I'm just going to continue. Like, you know? (laughs) It's such a circus thing, because I'm like, oh, that hurt. I'm not doing that ever again. (laughs) But circus hurts, and sometimes it's hard to distinguish what's what's a damage hurting and what's normal hurting. Um, And whatever. It was like the first move of my number, and I was on adrenaline. So I just... And it was a thing where, like, one trick popped it out and the next trick popped it back in. So I was like, okay, well, this is fine. Now it's in. But then afterwards, it really hurt and it kept on hurting and getting worse. And it's, like, really scary because you're like, what the hell am I going to do if this is a real problem? And it ended up being a real problem. Um, But it was funny when I I went back to Brussels uh, knowing... I went back to Brussels and I knew that I was going to have to stay in Brussels. Like, I had quit GOP. And... by the way, they flew in a replacement within like 24 hours, Just crazy. So circus artists out there don't feel bad about like, if you're injured, just like, they don't mind, like they'll get a new like, person. Like we will find someone. <laughs> they'll find someone quick. Um, did you need surgery? You did need surgery. I did right? need surgery. Yeah. So I was lucky that I, um, 
I was in touch with the physio at Ezak, the circus school in Brussels, and he got me into the uh, operation super quick. So I was like one, I only had to wait for a month or something. Um, and I got the surgery, uh, which was a slap lesion repair. So it was like repairing the labrum, the round ligament. Um, in your shoulder. In my shoulder. Yeah, sorry, I was pointing at my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and I was like super relieved to not be doing GOP. I was kind of like happy to be home. And then I was like, shit, maybe I should reevaluate some life choices. Because mm-hmm. cause I was stoked that my contract was finished after. I was like super happy. I was like, thank God I don't have to do this. Right. And, and I was you're like, like, well, I should be rethinking. I should be rethinking some life decisions because like something is not going right if this is. Um... And while I was injured, of course, there was a period where I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? Because I couldn't even really work a day job because I had an arm in a sling. You know, I couldn't be like, oh, I'm just going to work in a bar until this is done because I couldn't carry anything. Right. You know, I couldn't even wash my own dishes, let alone other people's. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and um, and so I wrote to uh, Angelique Wilkie, who's now teaching at Concordia um, in the dance program. And she was at the time, I don't know what exactly her position was at ESAC, but she was involved with the artistic direction at ESAC in Brussels. And... Um, my boyfriend at the time was getting ready to do uh, Cirque du Demain, and she was sort of coaching his number, Hugo Mega. And um, and I met her through that, and we got along super well. And so when I was uh, trying to decide what to do with my time, I wrote to her, and I was like, do you have any projects you're working on? Can I just come observe your process? Um, and it turned out that she was uh, sort of leading the creation of the first year uh, show at Azak that year. So she brought me in at first as an observer and then really like was super generous about letting me contribute a lot of, um, a lot to the artistic process. And like, I really got to see what she did when she wasn't with the students also, like the way that her planning worked and the way that her reflection worked outside of the studio. And, um, and I found myself so much more happy doing that than, than performing GOP. And I was like, hmm, well, maybe this is, maybe this is what I should be doing, you know? Which led to you to sort of what you're doing now, which is that you've finished uh, one year of one grad program sort of focused on dramaturgy with your, you specializing in, in circus dramaturgy, and now you're in your, another separate program, but a second year yeah, of studying. Yeah, it's kind of confusing. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, um, and... In the Netherlands, they have two different tiers of master's program. And basically, I did the like the less serious tier, and now I'm doing the more serious tier. Um, and Studying dramaturgy. The official name of the program was Theater Studies, and now it's this year they changed the name to Contemporary Dance, Theater, and Dramaturgy. But it's the same syllabus, basically. Can you talk about what discussing circus and dance like in academia is like and the kinds of things you talk about and just the approach to to what it is for somebody who who knows literally nothing about talking about that kind of stuff in an academic environment? Yeah, sure. The thing that struck me most when I first got into university was that, um, and I think this is maybe unique to also the Dutch ethos. I'm not... I'm not sure. Um, but when we went to go see shows as a class, the teachers were quite, or the professors were quite um, adamant that rather than criticizing and saying what it could have been, that we sort of assume that everything that was was what it was supposed to be mm-hmm. and that our thought process be more about uh, what that does, you know? So, like, if, if, I mean, the easiest example is if a show is super, super boring, then the rather than saying, oh, well, they, they fucked up, like, mm-hmm. that was boring. Um, they really encouraged us to think, well, that artist made a boring show. Why would they have wanted to make a boring show? Like, what does being bored do to the spectator, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So there's really a much more affirmative approach. And I realized that, because um, in circus school and among circus artists, like, often we go to shows and it's just, you just trash it afterwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least in Europe and in Canada. Um, sorry, Quebec. Um, uh, and it was so refreshing to be like, oh yeah, actually like anything is, anything is like, okay. Like who am I to say what a show should be or shouldn't be? Mm-hmm. One of the things that you and I were talking about last night was sort of the circus, uh, industry in general's 
pushback wouldn't be the right word, but um, uh, I mean, the woman we talked about, I'm going to mispronounce her name, Ant- but anti intellectualism? Yeah, anti intellectualism. Yeah. Maybe not intellectualism, but anti the. Yeah, I guess intellectual is the right word. It seems more academically bent anti than it seems just purely intellectual. Intellectual. Like there seems to well, be. Well, some... why do you think that is? I'm going to interview Wait, you but for a you moment. You guys had just this. Did we not ask the question? No, I have properly. no idea what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a conversation about Balka Levens, who's a, a Flemish dramaturg. Who, Lindsay and I talked about her open letter two or three podcasts ago to do with romanticism in Yeah, the so she's been writing these open letters, mm-hmm. and they've been quite controversial in the circus world because mm-hmm. her writing style uh, is difficult. Yes. Uh, what, what Essentially. We talked about was sort of how the the audience... Uh, Lindsay and I talked about the podcast a couple episodes ago, and you can go back and listen to it, but how uh, the audience that who most benefit by it, it does not is not the kind of audience that's well served by a super academic uh, writing style that, that she writes in, which is unfortunate because that's who can really have that long extended conversation with her. Yeah, let's talk about that. That anti, I guess anti-intellectualism is one way to frame it, but I think it, I, I'm not really sure what, what the root of it is, but have you experienced that personally? Oh, sure. Totally. I mean, because also the, the place that I'm at, like, because I'm trying to discover things for myself, I'm not necessarily concerned in my writing at the moment about making it accessible. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that the stuff that I'm producing at the moment within the university is is even less uh, inviting than Pauka's writing. I was lucky enough to be able to uh, give a couple lectures. But so in uh, the at the Circus Festival in Berlin, at the Barcelona Hand-to-Hand Conference, and uh, at Tent in Amsterdam, which is a residency center, in all cases, I could see that some people really connected with what I was going on about, and some people were like, this is not for me. What were you typically presenting? Um, I was kind of uh, presenting different versions of my thesis research, um, which we can talk about more in depth Well, let's talk about just quickly. Just, just quickly, just so people get a sense of what, <clears throat> what okay. it is that's putting people's backs up. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so my thesis was called... Taking back the technical circus dramaturgy beyond the logic of mimesis. Boom. Boom. Wait, oh my god, you're going to have to say this like three more times so I can retain it. What? So, taking back the technical. <laughs> taking, okay, taking back the technical. Circus dramaturgy beyond the logic of mimesis. What does mimesis mean? Mimesis is, mimesis is the imitation of action. So like acting is mimesis. So, wait, so it's like taking back Mimesis taking means back imitation. Te- so you want to take back the technical. Technical from, okay, I, I don't even understand your title, Seb. <laughs> and I, like, went to Columbia. I'm not a... So, so the, the premise of it is that Did I kind of back? saw this trend in, in circus discourse, and so not necessarily, well, in circus shows, but also in the way circus artists talk about circus, in which the technique is different from the meaning of the show. You know? Like, an example of that. Like, like Slumber is, a, is an example um, so, like, in Slumber, the meaning of the show or the story mm-hmm. doesn't have to do with the individual tricks. Would you okay. agree? Like, yes, the story, yeah, the story yeah, yeah. is, like, yeah. these, like, girls, they have this night out, there's a, there's, am I allowed to spoil it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, there's like, murders, or, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, like, so that is different from... Right, and this drop on Silk doesn't... Yeah, it doesn't um, necessarily within the context of what the show is quote-unquote about, yeah. the specific tricks are kind of not irrelevant, but they're like a little bit decoration. Mm-hmm. Which is not a criticism of your show. No, no, no. This is just... Like, I'm yeah. super offended. <laughs> no, I mean, I it would be crazy if I was like, well, actually, that drop on Chinese pole... Yeah. ...was really... De- it was well, really meaningful. There is one... I think there was one drop in the in the... In mm. Chinese poll, actually, that did really mean a lot for the story. Yeah, there are moments where the tricks serve the story, but overall, you're right. Like, yeah, but he's doing it's roles, built, four roles yeah. versus roles of the pipe. It's like, versus, okay, what are your tricks? The okay, structure, the structure yeah. of the show is not built on the tricks. The, yeah. stru- right. the structure is built on different things. Yes, totally. Yeah. I totally agree. And um, and so my question was, um, so if we're always using like theater and dance more as the carriers of meaning mm-hmm. and the circus tricks are sort of decoration, then like, um, why are we doing circus at all and not mm-hmm. just theater or dance mm-hmm. in the, not in the context of a, of a commercial show where like, obviously the, 
the tricks add excitement. Like, there's obviously a reason for it. But more when circus artists are claiming to be artists with a capital A, like, making work that has, that's not about, um, entertainment, but that's about, you know, some, whatever, something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had a question of, uh, the medium. Mm-hmm. It's like, like a circus trick is not neutral. And I found, fa- I found that often circus artists, or I find that often circus artists treat circus as if it can just convey anything and that the material itself, but for me, the material itself already has certain meaningful qualities what do you think circus is good at conveying or versus bad or is bad at conveying sort of this well i think what it's particularly bad at conveying is like narratives about humans Mm -hmm. um because like any circus trick only very very generally can refer to like ascent or like Mm -hmm. like disaster like it doesn't it's not very articulate Mm -hmm. like circus technique is not very articulate if you try to map it back onto kind of like uh, the sort of story that would happen in a play. Right. Well, you know? Josh and I always talk about how I think circus is really good at uh, evoking emotions and feelings of mm. things and th- like themes, but not necessarily detail. Yeah. And, and that's what I was looking into was different kinds of ways that circus creates feelings. Mm-hmm. It, it, like at, at the most basic level. Um but I think the distinction that I made was feelings. I didn't even want to go so far as saying emotions. I wanted to talk about what what is called affect. So mm-hmm. it's like feelings outside of like um, sad, happy, which are already these categories that refer back to words. Mm-hmm. So like these sort of like feelings that you can't even um, necessarily talk about. I wanted to investigate different parameters mm-hmm. that circus technique well i think like experience. we talked about on our podcast before and adam was just on our previous podcast but w- watching adam's hat juggling act adam kugler adam kugler i don't know what the feeling that i was feeling was but when i was watching it i was feeling something yeah you know and like that was i i've i've said this now a million times so apologize but that was the first act where i was like wow i'm actually connecting to this in a way that's like I'm not supposed to be like, I'm like, oh, I understand like this girl is sad or like this is angry or whatever. And I was like, oh man, this is making me think and feel and like, it's really telling me a story. And it was mm-hmm. the first time I had seen it like in a real effective way. But I guess that sort of brings up an interesting question is like, did you, what, through this like research, did you find of like the relevance of story as a thing within circus? Like, yeah, I think I was not even, I was trying to talk on a level pre-story. Yeah. I was really thinking of um composition as like uh organizing different kinds of like energies in space mm-hmm. so like there's kind of like an intense energy over here or like a more relaxed energy over there or and uh, and basically through trying to come up with different kinds of categories for talking about these sort of more abstract energies um i was trying to make that a legitimate way of thinking or talking about circus because at the moment at the moment i find I mean, especially in Europe where we have to write funding applications, so you have to explain a lot of what your show is about. The about, um, people tend, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, this is putting me in a box. Like, I don't really want to have to do this. And the writing of the funding application is a pain in the ass because like, because the motivation is not telling a story. The motivation is kind of the technical research Mm -hmm. or the, um, but there doesn't exist a language yet in the community for describing that in a way that sounds compelling. Like mm-hmm. to say that like, um, like, Oh, the, like what I'm going to show is kind of like a formal arrangement of trapeze tricks. Like most circus artists don't yet have the vocabulary to explain the kind of content that they already are creating just in their practice. Or the value of it. Or the value, yeah, exactly, the value of it, or why people would want to support that kind of research. So uh, what happened, you know, you're presenting this to people who are in the circus community, how do they react to it? Like, everywhere was a little bit different. In Amsterdam, I had the most, uh, I had the longest time with the circus artists that were there, like we were doing a two-day workshop and the lectures were part of it. So they were more close to me and I felt like they could they felt more comfortable expressing um, dissent, you know? (laughs) Then other people just, like, walked into this space and I was, like, saying this crazy shit. And I feel like 
even if they had felt super offended, they wouldn't have talked they, to me. So what was the biggest offense to them? Um, was this idea that circus technique is not neutral. Because uh, it sort of um, is an offense to your artistic autonomy or something, your ability to decide, you know? So they were what saying that it's could... not neutral. Because, like, do you mean, like, a trick, you watch a trick, and just by doing that trick, it's, it's already something? Yeah. Okay. So it's not just like, but I don't know if I, I don't know if I agree with you. Now that I'm actually thinking about it. Because, I mean, if you watch, like, so, can you give me an example of a trick on hoop? Yeah. That you would say is not... So, so like, I don't think any of them are neutral. But, uh, I know that. Yeah. Like, so I, uh, I get that. Yeah. So, say, okay, so, like, your toe to the yeah, knee yeah, yeah, drop. Yeah. What does that then evoke? Or like It, it evokes itself. So, it, it just is what it is. And, and when you see it, you get a certain feeling from it. And that's that's the level that I'm talking about. Okay. So not the level of... not So, that's why it's beyond the logic of Mimisa. So, it's not about referring to something outside of itself. Yep. But it's about designing within just what it is. It's funny. I think you're actually coming at it from a very jugglery, almost, perspective. Like, I think the, the people who are the most into that way of thinking about technique, I think, are often jugglers. Yeah, I think that I have a lot in common with jugglers. Because they sort of go like, yeah, the trick is not supposed to be, like, to tell a story or anything. It's just your reaction to the way in which this pattern is looks and the way in which I'm accomplishing it and the thing I'm presenting is just the, the trick itself. Yeah, I think I'm really reacting to that feeling the feeling that I had when I was in circus school that my technical research was itself important. Yeah. You know, I was like, that's, that's my real work. And, um, and I think what I didn't think enough about in school was how to stage that in a way that the, the research or the knowledge that I'm generating becomes clearly what the performance is about. Like, I felt like I was often hiding behind character. Mm -hmm. Um, and in a way, don't you think like some mm -hmm. of the, like, I don't know. I I don't know. I mean, like I'm coming up from it from like a dance point of view more. Like mm -hmm. I don't know. I had this whole you know repertoire of of moves, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like similar to the tricks, and you can st string them together in a way that will either evoke this or this. But like at the base of it all it is like all this. What I would say is neutral vocabulary that you can then take and make into different things. Well, you could look at ballet, for example, as, yeah. a, as an example of... Okay, let's look at ballet for a second. So um, ballet, yeah, sure, it's it's it can be strung together into a bunch of different stories, all of the different stories of the ballet repertoire. But the technique itself has certain content um, in the sense that it values, like, weightlessness both in the sense of like the kinds of bodies that can be ballerinas and also the movement vocabulary. It's all about the illusion of flying, essentially. So it's sort of, it expresses this um, idea that like grounded, earthy, also like sexuality is kind of taboo in ballet. It, in a way. They, Definitely in classical it, ballet. It becomes yeah. very formal yeah. in, in, yeah, a, yeah. in a sense that's not connected at all with like your hip region. Like there's a whole frozen... In ballet, there's a word. It's like the frozen, the frozen foot or something. There's a there's a section of a ballerina's body that like never. No. It's like between the bottom of your ribs and like the top of your thighs. Mm -hmm. Like it kind of, you you don't at all move from your hips, you know. Yeah, I mean, in a very like specific classical. Yeah. and and then also like turnout. Turnout is about being super visible. Like mm -hmm. so, you you're. Always performing for a frontal, for a frontal spectator, and the point of turnout is sh like visibilizing as much of your body as like opening yourself to them. You know, you do an arabesque and you open your chest to the. It's all about being kind of like splayed open, mm -hmm. and um, and the bodies are are super disciplined. So mm -hmm. like, ballet is like, in a way, pro weightlessness, anti earth, anti sexuality, like. Pro visibility, yeah. I mean, pro that's surveillance. Like a very like, I can I could, I can think of ballet moves that that would contradict a little bit of what you're saying. Mm. You know, but I guess I do see your point. Yeah, but in general, if you're a ballerina and you land heavy, that's bad. 
Yeah, but there's a lot of plies where you're going down and you're, like, going into the ground, right? And you're pushing off from the ground. Like, I would say, and, like, you know, even when you are in a turn and your arms are in first position Mm. or whatever, you're, like, that's, like, guarding yourself, right? Mm. And that's, like, bringing it in. And I, and, like, there is a lot of, there is sexuality when it's, like, the the man and woman dancing together, right? He's, like, lifting her. And it's all, like, holding her hips while she's spinning. Yeah. And, like, the legs and stuff. And, like... I don't know. I, when I watch ballet, sometimes I do feel like it's very sensual when it's like a man and woman partnering dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and even some of the like, uh, you know, like when you like all this like arm stuff and like, I don't know. I totally see what you're saying, but I also don't. I think it's I think the it's at least to me, the, the juggling example is the one that's like the clearest for me to wrap my yeah. my brain around. But I I think it comes from an interesting, interesting point of of finding the artistic relevance in uh, pushing simply physical movement in new ways without having any uh, narrative component. Not not narrative, but narrative, or at least thematically narrative, like it's about sadness, like you were Mm -hmm. saying, or about happiness. And uh, I definitely think circus performers struggle with with a way to prove that, like, particularly jugglers, like, yeah, this new seven-ball pattern I found out is is not just athletically impressive, there's also an artistic element to it. Like, this is visually, aesthetically, uh, you know, interesting. Yeah, and I find we get in a position where um, it becomes hard to justify putting tricks in. In in a really artistic context, it becomes hard to justify putting tricks in. And I think that means that we're thinking about what... We're thinking about the content of shows wrong. Because our medium is... Are these tricks? Our medium is these... Our medium is these tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what I, what I was trying to do also in my research is start from the technique and see what you can build from the technique without it becoming second fiddle to a uh, narrative, like mm-hmm. a more literary or a more like mm-hmm. dramatic um, way of making meaning. One of the things that I thought was really kind of fun and funny that we were talking about this morning is how essentially a lot of the discussion and a lot of things you've been learning and exploring while you're in university are best suited for a university setting and also best suited for people who are studying circus, but maybe not best suited for people who are doing a bachelor's in circus. Yeah, totally. Can you talk about why you sort of think that? Yeah, because I'm encouraging people to be uh, unpopular, you know, kind of like, like the, the, the kinds of things that I'm going to throw in there and ask people to question are the things that are precisely selling their, their numbers. Mm-hmm. And I think it's confusing because circus school, on the one hand, uh, tells you you're an artist, and on the other hand, often is really focused on creating numbers that then can be sold on the market as mm-hmm. like a commercial product. And um, the kinds of questioning that I'm involved in at the moment is not necessary. In fact, if you listen to me at all, you're not going to make a number that sells. So, <laughs> so I feel kind of I feel kind of irresponsible going into a bachelor's program and being like, but like, why don't you make an hour long number or like right. what like why don't you make a series of thirty second long numbers? I think or this something, is where you, you and know? I are are having uh, not trouble connecting. That's not the but are like we having trouble connecting because no. I feel so connected to you right now. <laughs> In life, we're super connected on this very yeah. thought process. Uh, we're not. Yeah. But I think, but I understand what you're saying. But I think that's what my problem is because I'm coming from it with such a unfortunately like a commercial. It's not unfortunate. Yeah. I think I think that. I think that what's unfortunate is that we've established that hierarchy where artistic is cooler or something. You well, know? I don't think I don't think that. I definitely think that commercial can be really cool too. I also do. I just I think also, that yeah. like un- in the unfortunate way of like you doing an hour long piece just can't make money. Yes. You know, and like unfortunately for my brain, I have to come at it from a will this be a financial success or not right totally and so from my point of view i'm like well exploring these things like it it just like it's so hard for me to understand because i'm just like well why because it's not gonna do anything as far as like you know who's gonna come see that like who's gonna pay money to see it i'm more responding to the claim that circus is an art form in the same arena as contemporary dance theater visual arts right this kind of stuff and which are also still hard for people to come see yeah totally but they're very valid and i really appreciate all of those but there's but there's i think a certain confusion 
in the circus world that we're we're both at the same time. Mm. And and I think that prevents us from being taken seriously by anyone sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um I'm not at all saying that commercial circus needs to or should or would benefit from a more in-depth formal uh self-knowledge. Like obviously commercial circus develops uh along the lines of what's exciting. And that's yeah. totally chill and great and exciting. But there's a lot of circus artists that talk a lot of shit about about art, you know? And you, you go to a circus show and they say, well, that sucked for this and this and this reason. And, like, what was the justification behind that trick? And, like, what I didn't get what the point was. And, and that... Talking that talk is not so far as I have seen coupled with walking that walk. And that's more what I'm... Mm-hmm. engaged with mm-hmm. does that make sense yes well i feel like we've covered so much and that we could do this for two hours but i do want to get i do want to get you to answer our classic oh yeah okay. our classic questions Classics. um <laughs> so the first classic question is has there been a piece of advice other than all the pieces of advice i've given you over the course of your life <laughs> that has um good or bad that's really stuck with you piece of advice good or bad so it could be something that you rebelled against or something that has you're never gonna be a contortionist yeah that's that's one (laughs) um piece of advice uh work on your knee hyperextension i regret that doing it or not doing (laughs) Doing it it. (laughs) (laughs) because my knees hurt man (laughs) now you just have bad knees now i just have bad knees I mean, my hyperextension is better, but it hurts like a motherfucker. Okay, well, there you go. There's take that so, you out there with accept your body pretty much as it is would be my piece of advice for up and coming circus artists. That's good. And then, as far as a, uh, it could be a book or a movie or a TV show or a theater piece uh, that you've seen that somebody who is getting into circus for the first time or in the early part of their development as a circus person, um, would you recommend they watch, read, or experience? Discipline and Punish by Michel Foucault. No, I mean, I think, I think that, uh, I think it depends. That's a kind of, a, can you rephrase the question? Yeah. So what, what is an important thing that somebody who is getting into circus, uh, read, watch, or see that you, that was important to you or that you think is worth people spending the time engaging with? Well, I think that goes back to our earlier discussion about different kinds of circus work and different kinds of circus artists. If, if I was talking to someone who wanted to be a, an artist in the, in the capital A sense of the word. Um, I actually would say, I actually would say discipline and punished by Michel Foucault, which is a, a book about discipline and the role that discipline has in society and the way that we internalize discipline and, um, and experience, experience the desires of other people as our own desires. So like, uh, the desire of the spectator to see something fantastic as my desire to do something fantastic. Um, and the amount of sort of like pain that we put ourselves through in order to um, deliver on those desires. Because um, I think that's a thing that's like not often, that circus artists often take for granted, that you have to discipline yourself. And I think that um, we do so much of that already in society. Like everyone is like, you know, like I, I set my alarm clock and I get up and I do my thing and I go for a jog and like, you know, you, you internalize all of these commands and the fact that circus does that like a hundred to 200 to 500% more than everyone else. I think that as an artist, that that's something to deal with, you know, so that's one thing. Um, I would, I would also recommend if you can get your hands on a copy of Au Cirque, which is a, um, a circus piece uh, from Alma Beholzer and Thomas Holgrin that premiered last year. Um, it's a circus piece that I would say is like about circus. Um, and I think it's an interesting approach. How do you spell the name of it? O-R, like or, and Cirque, like Cirque du Soleil. Awesome. But um, you probably should just... I mean, I guess I would just email them. So because I don't know, I don't think it's online or anywhere. But I'm sure that if you emailed them, they would be happy to share it with you. So it's a Alma Buholzer B U H O L Z E R and Thomas Solgrin S A U L G R A I N, and um, their circus company is called Circus Fetus. 
<laughs> um, was your a circus fetus? Circus fetus. Is that uh, their actual name, or is that like the American or the English? No, it's actually called circus fetus. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I would recommend that one. We should do call our circus baby. <laughs> circus baby. <laughs> Although I guess a fetus implies that it's not even born yet. So yeah, yeah. That's cool. So this is getting off the rails. Yeah, they're just getting off the rails. <laughs> Last question. Yeah. Who do you think we should have on our podcast that we haven't had on? Mm, Bauka, for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that would be super interesting to talk with her. Um, uh, who else? And I would talk to Alma and Tom, these two artists I just talked about. Um, the circus fetuses. The, the, the fetuses, yeah. <laughs> Alma's interesting. Alma's do, actually at the moment um, doing a master's in psychoanalysis and culture as a kind of like a um compliment to her performance work so she's got a really really interesting perspective and like a totally different theoretical perspective than what i'm getting but um but i think an interesting person to talk to for sure yeah awesome seb thank you so much for coming on the podcast anytime anytime sharing your ideas anytime and um if anyone wants to write me with comments, I'm also interested to hear what people have to say around the world. Yeah, how do they reach you if they want to keep the discussion going? Facebook is fine. Seb can. Um, yeah, it would be great. Like, Lindsay was wrong. Seb, you're totally right about all of your <laughs> all of your arguments. <laughs> Yay! Thanks, guys. That was our interview with Sebastian Can. If you liked that and you like our podcast, make sure to like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, tweet us, email us at hello at and subscribe on iTunes and rate us. Have a great week. Have a good week, guys. And make sure to follow our Instagram story for awesome. And make sure to follow our Instagram. <laughs> She's so mean. <laughs>